The journey of letting go of control is also, it, it feels really good to me. It's also ongoing. From the Jewish Funders Network, this is What Gives, the Jewish Philanthropy Podcast. I'm Andres Pocoini. On What Gives, we explore and debate the issues that matter in philanthropy and the Jewish community. And along the way, we build a deeper sense of community by sharing stories, getting to know the people in our field, and spreading ideas that can help all Jews and all givers change the world. Today, we're speaking with Amy Mandel. In the late 1980s, with funds made available by her parents, Cleveland philanthropist Barbara and Mort Mandel of the Barbara and Morton Mandel Family Foundation and the Jack, Joseph and Morton Mandel Foundation, she started giving to values-aligned nonprofits and eventually joined with her ex-wife, Katina Rodis, to establish the Amy Mandel and Katina Rodis Fund, now called the Tzedek Social Justice Fund. In 2020, after long and careful reflection, Amy stepped back from any active role in the organization beyond that of funder, ceding governance and decision-making power to Tzedek staff and a new board made up of local community leaders. In our wide-ranging conversation, Amy and I talked about her decision to cede power over her foundation and about growing up in a philanthropic family and much, much more. Take a listen. Hey, Amy, it's... Uh... Great to have you here. And, nice to uh, be here with you. <laughs> and uh, just wanted to, to start by you sharing with us a little bit of your journey. Um, how did you start in philanthropy? Um, did you ever think you would be in the place you are now? Absolutely. I did not think so. I did not wake up one day and say, oh, my God, I want to be a philanthropist. That didn't happen. Um, what happened was, as I think you know, my parents were involved in philanthropy from very early, probably before I was born. Um, as a matter of fact, as soon as my dad and his brothers, they bought an auto parts store from their uncle, I can't, I don't know what year, I think it was before the Second World War. And as soon as it started turning any profit at all, they bought it for $1,000, they started giving back to the community. So there was an imperative there. We didn't talk about it a lot in the family, but I knew that's what they were doing. Um, in the 80s, in the late 80s, my parents, who by then had not only the Mandel Foundation, but a family foundation right. made a certain, it started with $20,000 each, I believe for me, each of me and my two siblings as a line item in their family foundation for us to experiment with um, donating philanthropically. And right. then over the years, it grew into what my allocation is now, which is about to become its own foundation since my parents are dead and the family foundation's going to shut down. Um, it's been up, it's up to 2 million a year. And um, that trajectory was long and there was a lot of kind of monitoring. Mm -hmm. um, 
And the only mandate they really had for the first many years, the mandate for the way these funds would be distributed was that two thirds of it go to support Jewish causes because they were both very involved in the Jewish community and Jewish philanthropy, which was an interesting journey for me because I've always been, I mean, I grew up and I'm very informed by Jewish values, but um, I've always been about unity among all people and trying to build bridges, collaborate like that. But that's how it got started. And I can talk to you more about what my trajectory was like. But it wasn't that we talked a lot about philanthropy and the family all growing up. You didn't talk, but it was part of the ethos of the family. It was, it was, you, I think you, so. You, yeah. you inhaled it from the air in a way, right? I believe that I did, although I didn't really understand what they were doing. I knew right. they were at meetings. I think I grew to understand it later. And I'll tell you what's so interesting. I mean, I think particularly in my 20s, maybe even my 30s, I'm 70 now, I really thought my dad and I were really different. And I came to learn, particularly over the past last 10 years of his life, how much we actually had in common. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. that's beautiful. And and actually, yeah. you know, it's it's I speak with a lot of funders and a lot of intergenerational yeah. families, and that's yeah. a very common realization. Yeah. Like like the differences between generations, like you start from a place in which oh, we're so different and we're for different generations. And then when you yeah. start digging in, you realize that the values and the principles are the same. They just get expressed in different ways. Correct. Very different strategies. A lot of it informed by the conditions that surrounded each of us right. as we were growing up. His circumstances were very different from mine. And he yeah. actually made that money. Right. Or, well, his companies, it became extremely profitable. We could talk about like, where does my, how is it that people accrue this kind of wealth? But we don't have to talk about it now. Yeah. Well, it was it was a different it was a different time, and it, it was, was also a different. time of of manufacturing where all the accrual of war, of wealth today is basically in, in other fields, right? Like That's the right. tech field and the finance, and yeah. and I think that's something that for one day we're going to do a podcast about how. People that made their money in uh, manufacturing and in industrial yeah. settings think differently about philanthropy than folks that made their money in, in finance. Yeah. Well, I'll be I'll be looking forward to that. That's interesting. Yeah, because I think yeah. I think their understanding of process and collective action is much keener. Because when you run a company like that, you, you kind of have to negotiate a lot with a lot of people. That's interesting, because yeah. I mean, another thing. Go ahead. When, yeah. No, no. When when you, I mean, for the for the high tech money. I mean, no, no. It's a caricature, right? But it, but in a lot of cases, it's just having a brilliant idea, right? And and selling it off and making a ton of money. That's right. It's a different process, right? It's not it's better. A or worse. Very it's different a very process. different process. I just yeah. hadn't thought about how that would lead to some kind of more understanding of collective action. You right. know, but we can talk about that another time too. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so you you said you thought your your father and and you were were different. In, just go a little deeper on that. In, in what way you thought they were different? Well, we are different. It's just that the values are the same. Right. Our strategies are different. My dad um, was very top down. 
mm-hmm. extremely controlling. He was brilliant, a visionary, and I believe he considered himself as an expert. Um, it's not that he was opposed to learning, but I think that he felt the programs he could develop with his foundation were the thing, whereas I've had more of a learning model, like what can I learn from other people? And I love to collaborate. And his foundation did not do that. Right. The foundation did not do that. Well, but at I the don't same actually time, know enough to right. say that. No, but but it's interesting because on the one hand, y- you're right. But on the other hand, the foundation did support a lot of collective bodies like yes. federations and the UJN. Oh, absolutely the that. I think I'm talking about the model of even developing programming. Right. I don't know enough about how the... I, I don't know a lot about how the Mandel right. Foundation works. And this is not a critique. This is more from conversations between he and I. Right. And and when you got that pot of money to distribute, did you think the balance between being empowered and being conditioned was a good balance? You would have liked to have more freedom. You you understood that, you know, it was their money and they were okay to, you know, it was okay for them to yeah, set conditions. Well, I had to because it wasn't my money, but there was some tension there. I would have maybe done it a little differently, but I learned a lot in the process. And by the way, that by the time dad died in uh, 2019, that balance of that mandate shifted. So one third needed to go to support Jewish continuity or Jewish causes. But um, there was a tension there. There were other things I might have wanted to do and still might want to do if the money weren't as tightly controlled i might like to spend down more than five percent right you know payout or where is it invested or um because although my money is now in its own separate foundation it is overseen by the mandel foundation right understand and there's leverage there i mean it's just changing and growing but so there was a tension there and gratitude too and i didn't really know what i was doing at the beginning so there was a lot of exploration you said you were interested in sort of non-sectarian causes and and things like that but judaism really played a role in in your life and in your and even in your philanthropy even when it is for secular causes can you can you elaborate a little bit of that i mean i think that like I said, we were a pretty secular Jewish household, mm. but I think I picked up, I did go to Hebrew school. We called it Sunday school then. Yeah. Um, and picked up on a lot of the values like tikkun olam, what role can I play in repairing the world? And having, there's lots of things you can do, um, but having that pot of money as you describe it, wasn't more of that impair, imperative, the value of community and the value of each unique right. individual. Seems like a Jewish value to me, universal, but Jewish. Don't they say, right. like, if you save one person, you save the world, yeah. something like that? That's yeah. true. That's true. Yeah. But it, it, like the question that I have, and that's kind of um, my own reflection about the, the notion of tikkun olam, yeah. um, is that Okay, I understand that Judaism instructs us to 
take care of the world at large and to our fellow human being. The question I ask myself is how it is different for being Jewish, meaning. I don't know. What is it? Because I think that that's what we should be like. Those of us who care about this, like it, the concept of tikkun olam is, is richer than just saying, you know, help everybody. And like the, there are like we should be exploring what what makes it specifically Jewish rather than say it's something that we want to do anyway. And we put the right. Hebrew name to it. Right. Uh, I can't help you with that one because yeah. I don't know either. I mean, just the same as like ascetic justice i mean it let's just say the values i have i'm going to have an assumption that they're partly based on jewish jewish habits i would like to see a fair just and compassionate world right and maybe maybe the role that we have in the community is to say okay let's let's dig a little deeper what is specifically jewish about that let's not just pick up one quote to say oh right right you know and and just try to explore a little bit you know that i like for example when we talk about the Kunalama, we talk about things like justice and yeah. things like that. I like to frame it in terms of dilemmas, meaning ah. it's it's kind of interesting to say, okay, we have to be just and compassionate, but wait a second, what happens when two values collide? How do you negotiate that? Because mm-hmm. everybody can agree, yes, we all want to, but but the, but but the test is when you when you have a dilemma, when two values so much like look at the polarization now in the world right you know i would be very surprised if people who disagree with me politically for instance didn't also think well i I can't know but i mean people think they have the idea of what's going to make the world better now maybe we have different values but you're right yeah i mean i i tend to think a lot about I live in New York. There's been, yeah. you know, we're recording that, you know, two days after there was a shooting in the That's in the right. subway. And right. and and now I have a conflict of values between freedom and security. Yes. <laughs> right. I yes. want to ride the subway freely without, you know, being overseen by police and checked and frisked. And and yet, you know, I also want to have the value of being in, peace and security and quiet so how do you negotiate both and i think that mm-hmm. the conversation could be much richer if we you know use jewish values and jewish texts to inform that you know so mm-hmm. you know it could be interesting anyway i i, I will be very interesting to see what you yeah. roll out in the jewish <laughs> Network. Me too i don't know yeah you were involved in you know, social justice causes and activism, like throughout your life, um, mm-hmm. w- that did create any tension with your family? Uh, was your family, uh, you know, well, welcoming really. of that? Um, I mean, when you think about the things I was involved in, um, women's rights, right, equality for LGBTQ people, of which I am one, um, protesting the war now there may have been some differences there i'm talking about vietnam war right um workers rights things like that not really um because like i said i think the values were the same it's not like we did it together though as a family i think there was a lot of um room to just be who you are that's amazing Mm -hmm. yeah and that's and that's 
the, the reason why I'm asking all these questions is because this informs really a lot of a lot of families that are dealing with the same issue of transfer it's, of generational transfer. It's and, really unique the way it rolled out for me. I'm in such a unique situation because I'm not having to do things out with family members, right. like what happens in a lot of family foundations, even when there's slight differences. Right. I have a lot of autonomy. Yes, I mentioned that there's control. But, over how you know how it's distributed to some degree but i have a tremendous amount of autonomy right. and as a matter of fact um yeah yeah, yeah. Talk, talk a little bit about some of the struggles you've been involved with i mean i i'm i'm fascinated by the lgbtq fight the, the fight for marriage equality because it succeeded because it wasn't, you know, a few decades ago, it would have been an outlandish idea. And it, probably, it, it looks looking like it's going to be again soon. I'm right. Not so sure but, we're going to be but, able to but, hold but, on to but, that. Right. But, but, but even if, even if there's, even if there's, if, if there's a retreat or, or even if things go bad, like that won't take away the fact that it was it a was successful. A huge so so the question uh, and the question is what made it successful in other words what can we learn from that struggle to uh that we can use for other struggles right for other rights it's a really good question that i'm sorry i can't answer for you i think it captured people's imagination like we are more like you than different than you but right. I don't really know. People could relate. It it became very concrete for people who may not right. believe in gay rights in general, even. It's like, look, we, we don't have these rights. We can't visit our loved one in the hospital. We can't, you know, all these legal rights that right. you have, we don't have. People could understand it maybe in those terms yes. in that time, you know? I think there was something really interesting about making it about love. <laughs> Than making it about political statements, mm-hmm. um, right. it could yeah. be, and 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 the and the personal connection. You know, I, I have to admit, I was I was pretty much ignorant about the plight of of families with trans kids mm-hmm. until I actually talked to them and and mm-hmm. and met them. And and I think that when you start looking that in you know in every family you can have members that are. Mm-hmm. LGBT and it's not an it's not some abstract thing. It's just people you know and love, you know, mm-hmm. that 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 want to love at their turn. So it's I think when people admit that and do look in their own families, like you said, I mean, I think connection with other people and other people different from oneself right. is one of the greatest ways to learn right. and can promote solidarity and understanding. Which is yeah. which is very hard. In this day and age, you talk about you and your yeah. father having similar values because I think that the commonality was stressed, as opposed to now that the differences are stressed, right? And yeah. the polarization makes it so that you know we may agree on eighty percent of stuff, but we focus on the ten percent we don't agree. It's tough now, and with my dad, it was a trajectory. We did not spend, much, you know, he was a very busy guy. Right. And really, really busy. And um, 
that was true all throughout growing up. And as a matter of fact, he had deep regrets about not having been able to be present for family life. But probably by, let's see, he he was 98 when he died. By his mid-80s, he started expressing deep regrets about that to me. And together we initiated some repair and really got to know each other a lot over Zoom, actually, um, in the the latter years. And we definitely disagreed about things, some things. And, um, but what happened was we grew a lot of respect. Right. And which is which is what we're other. missing now. Yeah. Which is, yeah. you know, I don't want you to agree with me. I want you to care about me. <laughs> right. Know? And it took it took a while. You yeah. know, um, he had been in philanthropy for so many years. I mean, the first several years of that maybe 10 year period, he was downloading a lot of what he considered the right way to do philanthropy. Right. And I definitely learned from that. But as time went on, I was clearly taking a different path. And he became a big fan of Static Social <laughs> Justice Fund near the end, which kind of surprised me. And it yeah. might be because for a while we had a leadership program for young adults, and leadership is definitely well. He was one all of about the leadership. Yeah. He was all about leadership. Yeah, you know. So. Um, uh, so uh, Shifting gears a little bit, yeah. Um, you know, in in the uh, Jewish Founders Network conference, we have a a session um, that is called, excuse my French, the Fuck Up Night, <laughs> yeah. in which funders share some stories about how they failed. You know, it's it's mm. a way of making us more humble, and but also, yeah. but also, you know, learning from mistakes. You know, mistakes are not necess- are the way to learn. So. What were some of the mistakes that you that you think you made, you, you know, or the failures you have in your philanthropic journey, and and what did you learn from them? Um, I would say this is a great segue because it had to do with a fellowship program mm-hmm. that we developed, start starting small in 2012, it, and growing into something called the Sedex Social Justice Fellowship, where we worked with young emerging leaders, a cohort, uh, the last cohort, I don't know how many it had, maybe 10, maybe eight. And um, the model was very funder generated in terms of something that I thought was a great idea that would be good for Asheville. And I got some, you know, people were drawn to it. And it was they would come to us for a year. We would stipend them with a salary of 30000 each. They would each work for, I can't remember, it wasn't 40 hours, maybe 30 hours a week at a local nonprofit, and then have 10 hours a week of training with each other. And there were some very good things about it, but we learned a lot. Number one, we didn't ask the Asheville community if this was something Asheville needed. That was one of the big fails. Maybe that $30,000 that we did that put into that for each of the fellows, plus paying for the training that we did, um, setting aside the money for that might have been better used in another way. It's difficult to find a job in Asheville, especially for young people of color, which it increasingly became populated by. People didn't stay. Part of my great idea, or so I thought at the time, was it would also, the fellows would stay. And, you know, what they learned in the organization could continue. 
and the way they cross-fertilized. And um, it, I just don't think as an all-white-led organization, we were the right people to be training who we eventually attracted. And that became clear. And we learned right. a lot from that last cohort of fellows, which... And those are just three of the things. Like I said, it was a well-liked program, but not necessarily what the community needed. Needed, And so after that last cohort, which I think was either 2016, 2017, or 27, it was 2017, 2018, um, we paused actually programming for a year. And we continued grant making, but we took at least a year, I think it turned into a little longer to do a lot of internal reflection with a lot of input from community members about what our next steps would be. Right. So it was generative. It wasn't exactly a failure, but it wasn't a success either. Yeah. Well, it's it's never a failure if you learn from it. That's right. That's <laughs> so, right. And, and, and it touches on issues we're going to be discussing in a few minutes, yeah. uh, these yeah. this issues of participatory grant making yeah. and involving the community. Uh, I mean, yeah. Let's let's talk a little bit about the the Tzedek Fund. I mean, you mentioned it a, a few times. Tzedek Social Justice Fund? Correct. Well... Give me the elevator pitch. <laughs> you know, it started out from me writing or recommending grants. Mm-hmm. And um, as it grew for a long time, I was married for 28 years and I brought my wife into it. When, and so the checks were coming from Amy Mandel and Katina Rodas fund of the Barbara and Morton Mandel Family Foundation, very long name. So it was called, among grantees, the Amy Mandel and Katina Rodas Fund. And the reason it's at a certain point, I'm like, this is not about me. We need a name that's about the work. Mm -hmm. But the habit and philanthropy for many years was, you know, you name it for the person. So that's how we got to the name. One way we got to the name, the other was Static Social Justice Fund is now an organization. It was not exactly an organization. There was the fellowship and there was the grant making. And during that year long time, we brought everything together with the same mission, same vision. And we don't do that particular kind of programming now. But and anyway, um, I, of course, sought out. Jewish organizations that I felt were combating anti-Semitism by showing up as Jews in and working with other constituencies. Right. You know, that was the way I leaned into that mandate. Mm-hmm. And um, increasingly funding organizations um that either advocated, that worked in some way for LGBTQ rights Mm -hmm. and equality. And increasingly over the last eight years or so, I really began to feel that there's no justice without racial justice. Mm -hmm. So that was increasing. The other thing that began to change over the last eight years was increasingly, well, here's something. I was chronically ill for many years and I couldn't get out and be in community. But starting in 2014, I was doing a lot better. 
And so I started meeting people and I started learning about the really deep and effective work that was going on in various grassroots organizations in Asheville. So over time, more and more and more of the funds were dedicated to Asheville. Um, and that's that's what's happening. That's what's happening now. Right. And can you can you tell me a little bit of some of the programs that that you fund the, through the Cedric Social well, Justice Fund? I could, but you could also look. Yeah. I mean, look look on the website. I'm not involved now, which uh -huh. is part of the thing. I mean, one of the things that I still fund it, but through the whole assessment, I learned. Well, it wasn't really through the, my experience was showing me as we attracted more staff, most of the staff from Sedic Social Justice Fund didn't come from philanthropy. They came mm -hmm. from the community more and more. They're a little younger than me. They're more grounded right. on the ground. And I have vision. I can inspire people, values. But at a certain point, after we redefined our mission and our vision, which is basically just trying to create an Asheville where everyone thrives. Right. You know, with a focus on community of color, communities of color, LGBTQ organizations and organizations that find ways to combat anti-Semitism and building bridges in there. Um, but because I my perspective is a little different, being a little bit removed um, and not a boots on the ground activist, really. Right. It became, I'm also not really an organizational implementer or a manager. Mm -hmm. It was by a beautiful accident that this thing turned into an organization. So I felt right. that it was time for other people to lead. To lead it. Yeah. And and, and that takes us to to the to to a very interesting issue, which is the, the whole notion of participatory grant making. Yeah. Yeah. Um you were interviewed in in a guide we just published. On PGM in in the Jewish community, yeah. And, and can you can you tell us a little bit about that process? What it's interesting because that grew dynamically too. I think oh. once I realized, we realized as a staff the non-successful aspects to the Aesthetic Social Justice Fund uh, mm -hmm. Fellowship Fund is great. Um, we started intensely trying to learn from community and build right. relationships more deeply with our grantees. And first we did an equity audit, but then during this year long process, we brought in 11 leaders in the community, many of whom had been grantees or were associated with organizations that had been grantees, probably two thirds of them were representing black and brown led organizations, several from the Jewish community to help us think about our next steps. So right. that was kind of the first piece of participatory, of participation, right. you know, and during that time they helped, we had two consultants working with us who were designing a community research project. Right. And, the advisors who we were meeting with monthly worked with staff and the consultants to refine the questions. Right. And meanwhile, we were building relationships. So 
out of that came this long community re- research report, which was the basis of SEDEC's new uh, strategic plan. Mm. And actually, they're doing a series of webinars now um, on that report. We also learned how important it was to do our learning in public and to share what we learned. That eventually led to a desire to experiment with participatory grant making. Mm-hmm. And I think it was in 2021, it could have been 2020, when the new director of community-led grant making was hired. And um, she's someone very based in the Asheville community, wherever. And she helped design the first, and it was in 2021, round of community-led grant making, which brought in five fellows who were stipended at... um, I think it's $10,000 each for up for between 30 and 50 hours of work a year. There were five of them over five months. They made the first round of um, participatory, well, of community-led grants. There were applications put out to the community. And the beauty of that was that we ended up learning about and hearing about organizations that SEDEC wouldn't have even, they weren't on our right. radar. They, they yeah. were your best, your best referrals for people. They um, were, but also, yeah, that's right. It but, wasn't but, but just it, through them that we found yeah. out. Yeah. I mean, what, what I, I mean, if I have to distill all that in one word, it, is, is, is relationships. It is all about relationships because, you know, that they were, that first round of grant, they're on for two years. Right. But that was also even about them building relationships with each other. The staff person was facilitator. But for SEDEC, it is all about relationships. And during mm-hmm. that year-long pause for the cause, we called it, there was a lot of work on internal culture, too. Right. And um, right. You, you, need, you can't do this if we don't change your internal culture as well. Yeah. And it wasn't a bad one, but there wasn't deep enough trust. Yeah. But but I mean, going back to the question of dilemmas, right? Because yeah. you know, we, we just mentioned, you know, principles that everybody agrees with, right? On paper, <laughs> you know, everybody believes true? in relation. Yeah. Everybody believes in the importance of sharing. It's power, hard work, Andre. But it's hard it work. It's hard and messy work. And you, I mean, I have to hand it to the staff that was there at the time. That was not easy and that was not fun. But, but let and me same with the things in community. Right. Well, that was messy too. Right, right. And that's what I was going like, you know, like what happened when through the participatory process, you end up with something that you don't feel comfortable supporting? Well, how do you deal with that? Who doesn't feel comfortable? So so, so let's say, let's say you're funding this fund, you're ceding powers, you're ceding powers. Oh, for me as the funder. right. That's my journey. If that were to happen, I mean, the journey of letting go of control is also, it it feels really good to me. It's also ongoing, you know, um, and that's part of the trust that if I am really, I was very fortunate that by the time I stepped back, um, it was very clear to me that that's what I needed to do, but some brilliant people had been attracted to the work and I had confidence mm. with in them. Those right. people will change, but we really codified values right. and so, mission so, and vision while I was still there. So my vision became bigger. It was our vision and it will shift. 
And I have to, it's funny because I've been on, been, I've seen things where I just kind of have to sit on my hands sometimes and just um, see that all works out, you know, letting go of control. If you come from a family where people are pretty controlling and where you've had the kind of power I had, which was one of the reasons I'm not uncomfortable with power, but the moment I knew I needed to step back, and I think I talked about it in the participatory grant making guide, we were having a strategic planning meeting yeah. was on Zoom. We were in the pandemic. And I noticed that with every suggestion, people were gauging my reaction. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't the smartest person in the world. It's just in the room. I'm, I'm fine, but especially in terms of systems thinking, I felt that I also had been feeling for a while that this thing was poised to flourish, poised to flourish. Uh-huh. And maybe if I got out of the way, it could flourish more. But but you didn't just get out of the way. That's that's what I'm getting. You you got out of the way, but before you did that, yeah. you built a relationship. That's absolutely true. And and you left a very clear notion of the values and the principles. So that's then, right then you know that's why the dilemmas in terms of values and that's what you, you say you say things work out but they don't magically work out they work out because they do not. there was investment in that in these two things clarifying Thank values you. oh my gosh i should have you like speak for me that was really well said <laughs> because that is what let it be okay there's tremendous buy-in um and then we fleshed out the values right together And so I did have confidence and there will be things I I can't imagine there won't be things that puzzle me. You're operating in in a field that, you know, people disagree on a lot on on how to, I mean, even the question of what is racial justice, what is social justice, you will have. Or how do you support, I mean, the people who are at SEDIC, my my thing is supporting from behind. You know, my dad's thing was more supporting from in front. And um, and that's what Sedek believes in too. You know, it's more of people call it trust-based philanthropy, but right. that's not just carte blanche. I mean, you build relationships Correct. and then you take risks. Right. And yeah. um, it's interesting too because I have more money than I can live in, and it's. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's the philanthropic fund, but I also have personal money, which right. I give fair amount away of. Uh, Fair, fair amount of it away each year, increasingly as an individual donor, now that I'm not working from the fund. And I do it in a very similar way. And right. actually a fair amount of it comes into Asheville. Some of it even goes to SEDIC. When you look at the state of, of philanthropy, and the state of the world in general, right? What what gives you hope? I mean, I know what scares you. I mean, we're all scared about the same things. And, and you yeah. refer some of them. But but what what gives you hope? Well, I want to say one more thing about yeah. the seeding power thing, which is that people might not think this is true, but it's actually kind of liberating because especially for someone like me being handed this big responsibility, that can be isolating. And I was lucky to be able to collaborate, 
But I also am freed of the notion that I'm any kind of expert when the people on the ground doing the work, in my opinion, are the experts in that work. Um, doesn't mean I don't know anything, though, Andres. I've learned a lot. <laughs> no, letting go, it's always good. It feels good. It feels good. It, it many... feels good and it's hard. Like it's for hard. me, but I, once I you love... do it, it's, it's one of the things that feel good after. <laughs> it feels good after. For me, I had to look at there was identity wrapped up in it. There was wonderful collaborative engagement, you right. know, and now I'm just in a different. And I do consult with Cedic at least right. quarterly. But anyway, go ahead. You wanted yeah. to know what gives me hope. I, I wanted to know what gives you hope. Well, people, actually. <laughs> relationships what i see people get going when i see people keeping going and trying to work together in spite of increasing difficulty i i'm not as hopeful as i was 10 years ago i mean i think i've lost any you know those of us born after world war ii i'm not quite sure how old you are but i was born and i'm white and my family was increasingly wealthy, so I had a lot of privilege. I had the idea that things could get better and that maybe the species was evolving, right? Yeah. I, I sort of lost some of that innocence yeah. over yeah. the years. Yeah. yeah, but it was, you know, we all lost a little bit of innocence. And especially uh, the last, what, five years? Wow. Right. Yeah. So... It's, that's a very hard question for me to answer, and I'm curious what gives you hope. I, I think my guess is be, being engaged yeah. in work like you are, that must be wonderful. Yeah. You know, I, mean, what, what I gives, do miss yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. What, what, what gives me hope is looking, you know, using the long vision of history, you know, yeah. and, and actually Jewish tradition. Like we've been, we've been around for 4,000 years, right? And you know whatever history can throw at us we've we've been there before <laughs> we know and we always well, you know i don't know if that's even true though i mean I, the, the one thing i haven't been involved in a lot of work to try to ameliorate climate change but that's one thing that's really different in how that's right driving. it's different but 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 we can draw from our experience as a people and from our experience yes. as a species you know yes. and, and i mean we we may decide not to right but but mm -hmm. but we can but we can do it we we have those tools and um and as you say things have a way of sorting themselves out that doesn't that doesn't make me complacent, uh, but it makes me face the work with some optimism. I think, and what gives it to me is, I was very general when I said people keeping going and not giving up. But I'm taught. But what I'm really meaning is the ongoing work I see people doing in right. Asheville on behalf of communities, kind of tirelessly, and. Um, the mending of rifts, for instance, there have been, because of scarcity of resources between the Black community and the Brown community, you know, like, what are the factors? Who are the people who want everyone to try to pull together? And I'm not talking about Nepali in a way. Like, what does it actually yeah. take? Thanks so much to Amy Mandel. You can read more about her work in JFM's new guidebook on participatory grantmaking, which you can find on our website at jfunders.org guidebook. 
You can also learn more about Tzedek Fund at tzedeksocialjusticefund, all one word, dot org. Thank you for tuning in. We want to hear your feedback about this podcast, but also guest ideas, breaking philanthropic news, whatever you want to send us. Write to us at communications at jfunders.org. Keep up with the Jewish Funders Network at jfunders.org and find us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at jfunders. You can also follow me on Twitter at Spokoini. I'll leave you with a quote from Hannah Arendt, who said, This is the precept by which I have lived. Prepare for the worst, expect the best, and take what comes. So keep giving, keep hoping always for the best, and join us next time on What Gives.